Hello and welcome to Future Proof, the podcast. This is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. I'm Jonathan McRae. If you'd like to get in touch with the show, you can email us, science at newstalk.com, or you can find us on Twitter, we're at Newstalk Science. Now, with all the technology we have, it's still pretty hard to accurately predict things like earthquakes and volcano eruptions. That is, it's hard for humans, but certain animals like elephants, snakes, sheep and dogs can be amazing at forecasting natural disasters, even better than our best technology. So on this week's podcast, we'll be meeting the fella trying to figure out how fortune-telling frogs foresee the future. That's in a few minutes, but first, it's time to look back at the week's science news. And joining us is Dr. Jessamine Fairfield from NUI Galway and Dr. Lara Dungan. You're both very welcome. Our first story hasn't to do with Russians building a secret and slightly concerning underground bunker in, in Dublin. It hasn't to do with uh, Putin threatening to possibly leave a, an astronaut on the International Space Station. As amazing as those stories are, there's an even more amazing story, and it has to do with Shackleton's endurance being found. Uh, Jessamine, uh, I know this is a story that you are very excited about, so I will just hand over to you to tell people what happened. So this is an incredible story uh, about Ernest Shackleton's ship Endurance being found uh, after sinking over 100 years ago in the Weddell Sea off Antarctica. Um, it sank in the year 1915. And it's really like, I'm the most excited about the story that I could possibly be, um, partly because the, the ship was actually found in incredible condition due to the really cold, really clear waters under Antarctica. Um, so the wood hadn't there's, rotted. Yeah, there's not a lot of microbes that eat yeah. the wood, right? Exactly. There, there's no no microbes that eat, would eat away at the wood. Um, so the condition of the wreck compared to other, you know, similarly aged wrecks is incredible. Um, there are little sea animals living on it, uh, but it's still in perfect condition. You can see like the word endurance across the bow of the ship. So if you're not familiar with Shackleton's expedition, um, just a quick recap of it. It was an attempt at a land crossing of Antarctica, begun only three years after Roald Amundsen was the first person to get to the South Pole. Um, Basically, there were two ships. So there was the Endurance and there was another ship that was going around to the other side of Antarctica to kind of lay supply depots for their eventual <laughs> successful passage across the continent. But they never even got onto Antarctica. Um, they got very close to it. They could actually see land. And then the ship Endurance got caught in the sea ice in the Weddell Sea and basically just started drifting around. Um, it was caught in the ice for over 10 months and the crew were hopeful that it would be released. Uh, but it never was. And eventually it started to be crushed by the ice. They had to abandon ship, which basically just meant standing nearby on the ice, trying to get supplies off it as it sank. And then the story of, of those people actually making it to safety is one of the most incredible stories of, forgive the pun, endurance um, in <laughs> human exploration history. They had to cover a bunch of sea ice, go by lifeboat to initially to Elephant Island, and then over 800 miles of open ocean to South Georgia Island for their eventual rescue. And, that's just, on just, and that was just on lifeboats, right? That, wasn't, that was they, just that on lifeboats yeah. because their actual ship sank beneath the sea ice. So like it's and it like amazingly, none of the crew of the Endurance died, which is like just shocking in these kind of stories. It, it wasn't um, Shackleton um, very clever in how he, he sort of kept the crew together. Didn't he do things? Was it, wasn't it him who said um, the crew were about to mutiny and they said, we need sleep. And he said, OK, fine. But he realized that if the crew slept at, at certain times that they, you know, they would perish. And so um, this story, I don't know if it's true or not, but um, the story that, that I heard was that he would um, let people fall asleep and then wake them two minutes later and say, well, uh, that's it. An hour's passed. Uh, it's time to get up. 
and uh, and and they wouldn't realize because when you go into like asleep so quickly, when you wake up, you've no idea how much time has passed. Like he did lots of clever things to try and keep the the crew alive. I think yeah. people might be able to correct me if that's the right the right person for that story, but I think it is. No, I think he did a lot of clever like psychological things, and even that that final lifeboat trip over the sea. Um, I think one of the people that he brought with him was not one of the most physically capable people for the trip, but he needed that person to sort of have attention and not just be left alone with the rest of the crew. So he he was really conscious of that kind of stuff, probably because it wasn't his first time to Antarctica and it wasn't his first big trip like that. Um, but yeah, it, like it's incredible that they were able to find this wreck. Uh, and even because I went to Antarctica myself three years ago, we didn't even go into the Weddell Sea because it's bound with ice like most of the time. It's yeah. very, very hard to get into. And so that's one of the reasons that this wreck was so difficult to recover as well. Um, the, the crew this year uh, were actually quite lucky to be able to get to it, but it was partly because due to global warming, yeah, there's a lot less sea ice than there yeah, used to be. Yeah. Well, if you want to see um, photographs of this amazing uh, find, um, I, I highly recommend that you spend um, a little bit of time this Sunday looking at the photographs and, and reading the story of Shackleton and, and this amazing uh, discovery. Laura, our second story uh, has to do with another step closer to rejuvenation. This is a um, research done in middle-aged mice. Um, and there's a couple of ways you can theoretically reverse aging. Wh which technique is this? So yeah, absolutely. This is a really interesting um, technique. There's a very famous scientist in Japan called um, Professor Shinya Yamanaka. He actually won the Nobel Prize in 2006 um, for uh, his induced pluripotent stem cells. But he has done further research on um, mice that prematurely age. So they are genetic um, mutants that prematurely age. And he treated them with this cocktail of um, uh, chemicals that will modify the genes. And he found that it stopped them from prematurely aging. Now, that's really interesting, but these were mutant mice. This new paper that was just published in Nature Aging, it comes from the Salk Institute in California. And what they've done is they've taken completely normal mice and they've treated them with this same cocktail to see what happens. And it's almost um, like a spectrum. So the younger they treat them for the longer they treat them, then the less they seem to age. And they measure this by looking at things like inflammation or senescence, which is where cells at the end of their life sort of go asleep, as it were, um, and stress responses, all the things that are associated with, with aging. And if they treated a mice at 12 to 15 months, which is sort of like the equivalent of 35 to 50 years old in a human, which I kind of resent as being called middle age, but I suppose it is middle age. <laughs> but anyway, I, I guess it probably is. I suppose if you're 50, then, then you need to live to 100 for it to be middle age. But anyway, um, and if they treat them for a long time, so seven to 10 months, they actually show this significant reduction in their cellular aging, especially in things like the skin and the kidneys. Now, it's really, really interesting, but they treated the equivalent of an 80-year-old mouse for a about a month and they got essentially nothing. So it's a massive ethical issue too, because if you treat mice or people or anything with these um, chemicals inappropriately, you can cause cancer. It's the same with everything. There's always a downside to treatments. And the question is, would you as a perfectly healthy 35 year old who didn't have a chronic disease like diabetes, Alzheimer's, would you take a cocktail of drugs in the hope that it would prevent a disease you don't know you're getting but with the risk of it causing a disease that could kill you. So it's, I mean, obviously it, this is not at that stage, but I just think it, it brings up huge ethical questions and it, it's quite fascinating, it, you know, obviously biologically, but also ethically. 
But I mean, you say a disease you don't know you're getting. Uh, certainly old age certainly is a disease we know we're getting, right? Well, I mean, no, because we all have to die. And and this is a big thing in, you know, in medicine. I've done a lot of geriatrics and, you know, people do die and it's the natural cycle of life. And obviously what we want to increase, I think, is health span, not necessarily lifespan. People should be healthy until they die. But we do have to die. That's a fact of life. You know, it's death and taxes. So I, I really think that this should be about making people healthier until they die of, at, you know, a reasonably normal age. Age, not 500, like I'm assuming you'd like to live to, Jonathan. <laughs> Hope you're enjoying your porridge, everyone. Um, <laughs> so, so these, um, these, uh, this treatment is—is is it in any way targeting these telomeres, the so-called um, end of uh, our, our DNA strands that sort of weather away with age? So it's sort of it's a cocktail that actually seems to treat everything. So primarily, it's it treats the um, what we call epigenetics, so the little bits that are stuck on top of your genes. Um, but it does it, it, overall it, exactly like you said. It stops aging in lots of different ways because it's four different chemicals. Um, so it's really fascinating to see these cells and how how robust they are compared to the you know their age matched equivalents. But it, it's a huge cocktail that treats a lot of different things. Okay, likelihood of this going into humans. Uh, anytime soon, very, very slim. Very, I, very slim. <laughs> yeah. Um, although if you're a billionaire and you're 70 years old, perhaps, uh, maybe you might, you might be reading this with interest. Um, <laughs> Jessamine, our third story has to do with DeepMind, one of the uh, Google um, projects that uh, specializes in um, deep learning. Um, and it's, it's to do with ancient texts. What's happening? Yeah, this is a really interesting application of uh, machine learning and deep neural networks to basically read damaged historical texts and also figure out where and when they were written. Um, so as you said, this is a collaboration between DeepMind, uh, as well as uh, classicists at Kafoskari University of Venice, Athens University, Harvard, and Oxford. And basically, they've trained uh, an AI on this data set of old texts to be able to figure out if there's figures missing from the text, what they probably were, as well as the you know, geographic and, and time location of when the text was probably written. So, you know, as with any machine learning thing, this is mainly about the data set that you train the algorithm on, right? So they used this uh, well-known data set called the Packard Humanities Institute data set, which starts out with actually over 178,000 different inscriptions um, from all over the classical world. Uh, but a lot of those dates are quite fuzzy. And so to get a very clear and well-known training data set, they narrowed it down to about 78,000 inscriptions that have well-known wording, very clear dates of where uh, it was written. And of course, you know, if you've discovered an artifact that has something written on it, um, where it was placed is actually pretty simple. It's just where you found it. So um, these sort of artifacts, are we talking about scrolls, um, slates, uh, writings on walls, pictures? What are, we, what are we talking about? Yeah, it can even be on vases, things like that. Um, anything that has sort of clear text on it. And specifically what they were looking at here was trying to be able to say, well, if some of this text is missing, right, and there's a lot of ancient texts that are in fragments, right? Like think of, of Sappho's fragments um, or things on like a pot that's been broken apart. Um, how do you figure out what the missing text is? And I know, so, I know. So this is what, um, isn't it, what Turing did with um, the Enigma machine that he developed to try and hack the, the German codes. They're, they looked for familiar looking phrases that they typically see in texts. Do they? Like things like, um, presumably stuff like Hail Caesar or those bloody Christians again, the sort of things that you would find in lots of ancient texts. 
Yeah, exactly. Um, and so then they were basically looking to see, like, can we fill in what the missing pieces are and yeah. also provide an estimate of, uh, you know, where and when it was written. And amazingly, the the um, machine learning algorithm that, that they developed, they called it Ithaca. Um, and just on its own, it was actually able to fill in missing pieces of text with 62% accuracy. And then when they provided it as a tool for historians to use, where it basically would suggest, like, here's the most probable missing characters here. Here's the most probable, you know, date and place that this was created. Um, then the accuracy rose to over 70% for the meaning, the location, and the, the dating of the text, um, which is amazing. So, you know, you know, don't think of this as a replacement for historians necessarily, but a tool that they can use. I think, though, to me, the main question I always have when I read about these machine learning approaches is, you know, invariably they replicate our own biases and any bias in the training set. Yeah. So if there's been a bias in, you know, say how people thought about women in the classical world, which there was for a long time, you know, like what words do you associate with women in classical texts? This tool is just going to continue to replicate those biases, right? So that's why it's important to use with live historians who can kind of think outside of their preconceptions a little bit. Right. But you're not suggesting that, um, the, the 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 historical way that women were depicted in this is necessarily rewritten or or what is the because obviously the, it it's it was it is obviously wrong how women have been treated in many um societies through history you know this week of all weeks we're we're very aware of of the the historical bias but um in terms of replicating these texts you, uh, what are you saying i'm not that saying that they should to... be rewritten i'm saying that if you've read a bunch of texts uh where you know women are considered like wives and mothers and then you read about a different city where women are considered a different way and you're trying to fill in the gaps you'll fill them in with what you know right, right. okay yeah yeah that's a really good point um and i suppose you having that historian there will say well that doesn't fit with the rest of our 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 approach because presumably this this machine will say, well, the you know the sentence either says one thing or another, and the historian then has to figure out what the most likely thing is based on the, a shorthand, rather than not having anything at all, and that probably is yeah, very exactly. Useful. And that's the thing, like just keeping in mind that you know we're always learning new things about history, even though it's in the past. <laughs> Totally. Okay. And then finally, Lara, a rather terrifying headline hit a number of newspapers um, and online outlets talking about uh, terrifying flying spiders. Can you tell us what's happening here? Absolutely. And you know what? I'm going to make this so quick because it is not news. And that is why this is a really good exercise in reading around headlines. So the headlines are everywhere. Huge, invasive, parachuting, giant, venomous spiders to invade the entire east coast of the USA. So these are Joro spiders, which are, are golden orb weavers, and they come from places like Japan, Korea, Taiwan. They have already been in the USA for about 10 years. Um, they have been doing no harm. Yes, they're invasive, and no, we don't want them there, but they're there. When they parachute, so, so the adults, yes, they can get up to three inches, but when they parachute, they are teeny tiny little babies, and they put their little silk strings out into the air, and the electromagnetic fields catch them. That's how small they are. So giant spiders are not going to parachute down on your head. They've already been there for 10 years, and yes, they're venomous, but virtually every spider is venomous. So are bees, so are wasps. They can't bite you pretty much, and they're certainly not going to kill you, and they're very non-aggressive. So just leave them alone. Now, we don't have them here, but just leave them alone. This isn't news. Don't read headlines as if they're fact, people. Well, um, w like what sort of numbers are we talking about? Because, of course, you know, the, the way it was portrayed is like the entire East Coast is going to be flooded with things. And that can be 
um, concerning if you see a, a, a big shift in an ecosystem? Absolutely. So there there are golden orb weave spiders, weaver spiders already in the US. They've been there for at least 160 years and they haven't overtaken the ecosystem. These animals are um, have a higher metabolic rate. Their heart rate goes 77% faster, which means that they can withstand colder environments so they can move slightly further north. But there is precedent here. These these spiders have been there 160 years. They're cousins. So there is no reason to assume that these will be some huge dramatic shift. And let me just add, like Jessamine did, it's because of climate change. It's getting a little bit warmer and these spiders are able to move further north. Now, I'm not um, uh, a great at my geography, but are you saying they come from Japan? They're coming to the east coast of America. How do they make that journey exactly? So exactly. They originally came from Japan, Korea and Taiwan. And the vast majority of the time, these animals make it over in food imports. So they would be on something like a banana, for instance, or something that was being imported. And one or two of them would escape. Well, it would have to be two. <laughs> one is no good unless it's a pregnant female. And if they find that they're in an area that is climatically the same as where they were born, then it doesn't matter to them. They just keep on going. So these come in by accident, you know, people the stories of people bringing in invasive species in their backpack stories of you know all sorts of things like this but once they're in you're not getting them out so we just have to learn to accept it yeah dora the explorer has a lot to answer for <laughs> exactly dr lara dung and dr jessamine fairfield thank you as always on the way can your dog predict oncoming disaster now even today with the most advanced technology available no one can reliably predict when an earthquake will occur. But according to some, animals can. In this unusual ability to detect natural disasters that some might call an animal instinct, is it just an urban myth or are there actual scientific proofs to support the theory? Well, Martin Vikelsky is a professor at the University of Constance and director at Max Planck Institute of Animal Behaviour. He joins me now. Uh, welcome to the programme, Martin. Um, can you tell me, for starters, how, how hard it is to predict an earthquake uh, as a human? Well, it's actually really hard. Um, that's why... <laughs> It's, it's always so astonishing that there is a huge earthquake happening and, and people are caught by surprise, so very difficult. And um, in terms of preparing for uh, an earthquake, obviously there are known faults, but it's hard to know where and how uh, one of these things will strike and hard to prepare for it. So there's inherent danger in not knowing this, right? Yes, absolutely. There are, I think, really good uh, predictions by seismologists that in a general area, as you said, there will be an earthquake and within the next uh, 10 years or so, but you don't know the details. So where does the idea um, come from that animals might be better predictors of, of something like this happening? Well, the idea is really old. Uh, probably 2000 years ago, the Greek already wrote that down and used it in their cities. Um, then it was clear through the Middle Ages in Japan, in China, in other places. Um, Alexander von Humboldt uh, realized that when he was in Venezuela 200 years ago. So the idea is old, uh, but the data are far and few between. And so in these sort of more ancient observations, what exactly were people writing about? What, what did they witness? Well, the Greek uh, witnessed that there was fog appearing at times when there shouldn't be any fog and then the animals went crazy and then they actually left the cities or walked out of the houses and uh, if they did they survived but then you also have areas like um, volcanic uh, like uh, tsunamis Banda Aceh, where 
if you're not prepared, an entire city can vanish. But then um, on the islands, people had songs. They had songs for their kids that uh, said, well, if the chicken run up the hill and if the elephants go crazy, then run up the hill as soon as you can. So there is knowledge that apparently really helps, um, but that's often not being used. And there are reports even um, in recent times of of uh, cities and villages uh, self-evacuating on the basis of uh, human behavior, uh, like in China in 1975. Exactly. Um, there are some famous cases, but there are also cases where it didn't work or where people missed out on these signs. So we think this, this biologging revolution, when we now have the chance to really observe animal behavior continuously, remotely, all over the place, could really be a way to solve this issue. What sort of animal movements are we talking about uh, here, Martin? Because obviously, um, horses run around all the time. It doesn't mean there's going to be an earthquake. Are there specific species that are good predictors? Or are there certain unusual movements by unusual animals that make you question whether or not this is a foreboding of some sort? Well, we have actually gone to um, the people that should know, farmers and uh, native villagers, and they tell you, oh, this animal and this species in our area is very sensitive and, and might tell you. Like, and, like what? Um, for example, um, I mean, elephants in Banda Aceh, or in that case, um, sheep and cows and dogs in Italy. Um, and if you study the right animals, individual animals that the farmers tell you, then there, there might be a chance to understand if they predict an earthquake. When you say individual animals, you don't mean like a single pig or a single elephant, or do you? Well, the farmers say on the farm we worked in Italy um, before one of the major earthquakes a few years ago, um, they had some 30 cows or so, but they only said, well, you know, six of them or eight of them are really good. So only use those and then <laughs> use the, the two dogs. And uh, they had some uh, rabbit and a, a few more chicken. But individuals, they know, they all, it's a very small farm. They all know their individuals and not every animal is as good as another one. Okay, so now I'm really intrigued. How did they know that these animals, these individual dogs, cows or elephants, were good at predicting earthquakes and, and that it wasn't just a fluke that they, they, they just behaved unusually? Well, you could actually still see that because we were down there after the major earthquake and these animals, these individuals were still totally sweaty. Uh, others weren't. So they were apparently much more stressed than the others, even after the earthquake, um, not only before. And uh, these farmers just, just really know their animals. But I think the key is that we were actually able to measure like a real time series throughout these earthquakes. And it, it still has lots of problems, but it seemed that we could actually predict what's, what's happening. I mean, the animals apparently predicted what's happening. So tell me about your research, how you went about it and what you found. Well, um, it's always difficult, obviously, to, to go to an area where an earthquake is happening or will happen. Uh, we know that there are some areas like uh, the Andrea, St. Andreas Fault, where eventually an earthquake will happen, but you never know, is it in 10 years, in 20 years, in 100 years? It's, a, it's an expensive project to hang out there for 20 years waiting for an earthquake. Exactly. So that's why we eventually said, okay, we wait for an earthquake and then go there and see if the animals can predict the aftershocks, which are 
the aftershocks are predictable. Some are very strong, some are less strong, but it's clear that some of them are super strong. So there was an earthquake in Italy. Uh, we drove down the next day. We found a place, a nice farm. They said, oh, yeah, we can do that. They told us which animals to use. And then we thought, oh, let's wait for the aftershock. But there was no aftershock coming. And the interesting thing was that the earthquake series started again, started new with a 6.6 .6 earthquake. So we basically then had animals before the earthquake during the earthquake and afterwards, and then during a control period. And we have a complete time series of their behavior during these times. So when you have um, a, a, an animal that you want to monitor to see if it can predict the onset of a, an earthquake, how do you rig up this animal to, to, to measure that? What sort of technology or measurements um, are required? In principle, it's what everybody has in their cell phones, um, in their smartphones. It's uh, measuring acceleration. So it's the movement of the body in space. And in that case, for the cows, I mean, there it's a traditional farm. The cows are um, sort of fixed in the stable um, so that they can be milked and, and so on. So they get a little necklace. Um, th those tags only weigh 20 grams and they record forever uh, continuously. And the same for the sheep and the dogs and the chicken and so on. They all get the same kind of devices that measure the nervousness in a way, the movement in space of a body of this animal. And, and, and so the movement in space is one of the key ones. Do you measure things like hormones or perspiration? Uh, you could. That would be really exciting, but it's much more difficult. So your movement, you know, your, your shakiness, your stress level, that's something that you can very easily measure. And that's what we did. So what did you find? Well, it was actually really interesting that um, if you, we, we did two, two correlations, uh, one just time series, the time series of an earthquake and time series, so the, the sequence um, of the animal behavior. And there were some interesting correlations, almost like a stock market. You use one stock to predict another stock. So that's, that's possible to some extent, but noisy. But if you go by what the farmers do, that they say, well, you know, if, if our animals go totally crazy, if there's mayhem on the farm, and not just for five minutes, but for an hour, then we think that something is really, really happening. Something is, is sort of coming our way. And that's exactly what the animals did. So what what is that, uh, compared to baseline, what does that look like, that sort of craziness that you're talking about? Well, you can imagine if you would stand on the farm, all the animals would be active. There would be calling and movement and rattling of chains and just mayhem. Uh, you know, that, that may be similar to, say, in the morning when the farmer feeds the entire um, farm. But at that time... Um, the, the, the activity level would be even higher. So, so it's something that you have to compare to a regular uh, pattern, a daily movement pattern of animals on this farm. But if, say, at night, three o'clock in the morning, these animals rattle their chains and they don't stop for an hour, or during the feeding times, they are even more active. They are trying to break away. They are all, they're just going totally crazy for an hour, for a really long period of time. Then you know something is coming. Right. And so um, you were very lucky to have this earthquake happen as you were measuring. Were there other instances where uh, they were acutely sensitive to maybe 
less severe earthquakes or is there evidence to suggest that these animals might might be able to predict other types of natural disasters, for example, hurricanes and that sort of thing? Well, there are some indications around the world. There are more and more studies towards that. So that's really interesting. But what we found is that um, seven out of the eight major earthquakes, uh, magnitude above four, were predicted by the animals. Now, the interesting aspect was that there were different times ahead of before an earthquake that they were getting active. Right. What we realized is that this time was related to the distance of this epicenter from the farm. So if the, the epicenter was right below the farm, we had one that was basically right below the farm. The animals were active about 12, 14 hours before this earthquake. If wow. The, Sorry. Half a day before the, the earthquake. That is... That is very, I mean, I thought you were going to say 30 minutes. No, quite a while, quite a while before. Now, if the earthquake was about 30 or 25 kilometers away, it was only about two hours before or an hour before. And that's interesting because that means, for one, you can't use this knowledge of animals for more than maybe 30 kilometers. The, the signs don't reach the animals. And um, it's, it's, yeah, it's becoming noisy if the, if the earthquake would be too far away. This is fascinating. First, I want to know how this works. What is the mechanism, do you think, for the animals to understand what's going on underneath the ground? We don't know. And that's a big problem, obviously. But, you know, it's the same if you have a, a dog that is a, a blood dog that finds a blood trail. You don't know how they do it. You just know they do it. And you use the readout from that dog, from that sort of black box, you know it's working. And that's in a way what we are doing now. But obviously we want, we want to understand the mechanism. So what we think is happening is that when the, the plates are sort of almost moving before an earthquake, when there, there's enormous pressure on the rocks, we know that the, the ions from the rocks, the, the minerals are actually going into the air. So there's ionized air, and that air may actually travel around, I mean, may diffuse. And if you are an animal with, you know, fully haired or fully feathered, all your feathers stand up, all your hair stands up. And if your neighbor also says, oh, something's wrong, all my hair is standing up and everybody's hair is standing up, maybe that's, that's the mechanism. We don't know for sure. So mass psychogenic illness potentially within um, sheep or, or chickens. Exactly. That's how it sounds like. Yes. So um, just to give listeners an idea of what humans would feel 12 hours before uh, a major earthquake, if I was sitting in my kitchen having a glass of water, what sort of rumblings or noises or sensations would I experience as a human in that scenario? Well, there don't seem to be a lot of pre-quakes that could predict a major earthquake. Yes, sometimes there's a little more activity, but you know there's no clear pattern that there is uh, that the rumblings wouldn't give away that there is a big earthquake coming. But but uh, but um, I guess what I'm asking is, would I would I notice something at that twelve-hour point? Like the, the the animals obviously sense something. Would would a would a, 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 a seismometer in my in my hand on the or on the ground would, would that be going something is about to happen? 
Um, we don't know for sure because usually humans are not in groups together and also I think they're more buffered against these um, signs of nature. Right. So, 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 so really the only reliable um, tool to predict uh, an earthquake so far we're, we're thinking could possibly be animals uh, in, in, who are sensitive to this upcoming change in the environment but we don't know what the mechanism might be for that. That is really, really interesting. Well, you, you always need the instruments that are out there now to really know, you know what, what's the earth doing in general below you and what are the, the, the overall expectations. But then maybe animals can be an additional source of information that maybe they are sometimes wrong, but it seems that, uh, from our data that they are very often right and that the system could give you additional information that could be essential. Okay, so we know that this happens with all sorts of animals, not, not every individual, but some individuals in advance of an earthquake. You, you could have elephants, you could have dogs, sheep, pigs, snakes even. Um, do we have an idea that maybe one species might be a better predictor than the other? Could you do sort of an X-factor comparison? Um, is, that, is that in any way possible? But, or would you have to have a Noah's Ark of animals um, in the right place at the right time? Well, we know in, in dogs that some breeds are better for certain things than others. So we expect that same thing in, in wild animals. But there's very little information on that yet. I mean, that's part of what we're doing right now, this Icarus project to receive data through a space receiver from anywhere on the planet and see which animals could be the ones that tell us most or that are the most sensitive ones. So that's something that we still have to do. And there's, in general, a lot more research we need to do to really understand what's happening there. And I suppose your hope, I, I would imagine, Martin, is that one day you could harness this pre-sensing knowledge of animals to help people um, in advance of what could be life-threatening natural disasters. Is there any way you can imagine being able to use this sense today? Yes. I mean, we, we are using it now uh, at a system at Mount Etna with goats to predict, potentially predict uh, volcanic eruption. <laughs> it seems to work. We actually have also patented that idea so that you know, we could give it back to the people on the ground. That's really the idea. Electronic devices are becoming so cheap. This, this information flow is so powerful that you could give the power of prediction to the people locally. They could use their own favorite dogs, their favorite goats, their favorite cows to do that. And I think that's the, the power of this approach. It can be used anywhere on the globe and give you additional information, put the, the power of prediction back to the people on site. Well, I mean, obviously there are there are man-made disasters going on at the moment, which, which also need attention, but it's a really interesting idea and fascinating research. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, that was Martin Vikelski from the Max Planck Institute of Animal Behaviour. Martin, thanks very much. Thank you very much. I can't wait to see if they figure out what, what that mechanism is because it's it's a real mystery, isn't it? And and the idea that different animals um, of totally different 
body shapes and physiologies, furry animals and not, all have some sort of sensation that humans are completely blind to is fascinating. It's time normally uh, at this part of the program where we look back at uh, some of your comments from last week, but there's only one um, from last week and someone texted in saying, good morning, I just want to say cats do grieve. I have one who's grieving and that's from Mary. Uh, Well, Mary, I'm sorry to hear that. I'm not sure what the text necessarily relates to. It's one of the problems of 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 um, of reading text one week later, trying to remember what exactly we were talking about. Um, I did, did I say cats don't grieve? Um, it's 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 possible, although I I you know I, I've seen elephants grieve and and monkeys grieve in in case studies um, uh, in in Africa. Um, so I have no reason to think cats don't grieve, uh, Mary. So if I implied that, I do apologise. <laughs> Um, so that's all the comments we have. We'd love to hear more from you. You can email us, science at newstalk.com, particularly if you have an animal who you think can tell the future. Uh, we'd love to hear that story. We will definitely read it out in next week's podcast. Um, but that's it from us uh, for this week's show. Thanks to Aidan McKelvey producing, Simon Keane, Steve Daunt and Jojo Cardozo on sound. We'll be back with more Future Proof in your podcast feed on Tuesday. In the meantime, stay curious. Stay curious.